Well, remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And beloved, before I read from verse 21 through the end of that chapter, let's ask for the Lord's enlightenment and blessing. Let's pray together. Now, Almighty God, we do come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, O oh Lord, for enlightenment. Lord, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see the spiritual truths, O oh Lord, that we will be looking at from this chapter from your word. Give us receptive hearts. Give us ears that hear. Lord, not just the words of the preacher, but the words of the blessed Savior. That we would hear these spiritual truths and doctrines and graces. And Father, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would continue to shape and mold us and conform us into the blessed image of our Lord and Savior, and you would continue to bind and knit this congregation together in unity and peace and love, all for your glory and, Lord, for our edification. We ask, O oh Lord, be in our midst still as we preach and hear your word preached. In Christ's name, amen. Well, beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 21. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. And so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But when he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they fell, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also had, have had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And beloved, this morning we will continue looking at the subject of forgiveness. And we are primarily doing so from the parable that Jesus tells to Peter when asked the question, how often should one forgive another? It is, I think, clear that we are all to glean from this parable that we are to be a forgiving people. We are to be people ready to forgive our brothers and our sisters, our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, whoever our neighbor is, 
Whoever sins against us, we must stand ready and willing to be forgiven or to be forgiving. And we must also be ready to ask for forgiveness when we offend others. This morning, I want to finish what I started last week and address the context and then the parable itself. And then I want to end with something of a particular gospel presentation from the lesson itself. The first thing I want to bring to your attention this morning from the chapter is the lessons, the lessons, these evangelical lessons that Jesus teaches in this moment. It's the answer, if you will, to the question that Jesus is asked in verse 1. There's been a, a rift among the disciples We don't know the details of this disagreement other than there is one and it must have been serious. So much so that Peter is distraught enough to come to the Lord and to ask the question that they must have been debating among themselves or at least arguing about. And that is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Our Lord begins to instruct Peter and thus instructing us by a series of illustrations or lessons, if you will. Each of these lessons contain an evangelical duty. The parable is the exclamation mark upon the duties. Well, let's look at the duties. The first duty that I want to impress upon you this morning is that of humility. Brothers and sisters, we must, as God's children, be humble. We must be humble, as Jesus says in those first few verses, humble like a child. He says right there in verse 3, And truly I say to you that unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We must have a mind and a heart ready to practice daily humility. That seems to be instrumental to the idea of forgiveness. If we are not a forgiving people, it could be, it may be that we are a a seriously arrogant, prideful, and hypocritical people. Because we are more apt and subject in particular when it comes to the faults and failures and sins of others rather than our own. And Jesus seems to address that from the very beginning. You must be like this child if you're even going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, we must be a humble people and we must practice humility. Now I'm going to use the word practice many times this morning because I do think it capsulated captures the Christian life because we never really perfect any of these graces that we possess by God's sovereign grace. Yes, we've been gifted, we've been we've been changed and we have been graced with God's favor. But these are things that we must, as God's children, claim for ourselves and put into practice. And again, the seriousness of putting into practice is related to what Jesus says at the very end of the chapter. 
My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So these aren't just suggestions. These are divine commandments. These are divine attributes and characteristics that we, if we are the children of God, we would seek to practice them. And by practicing them, hopefully we can mature those graces in our lives as we get older and as we face all kinds of human experience. Implementing and practicing and honing and putting to death the sins in our life, like arrogance, like pride, like hypocrisy, by recognizing I must be humble. Number two, the second evangelical lesson that I want to impress us with this morning as we look at the context of this question and the lesson on forgiveness is be alert. We must be a people who stand guard and on alert. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your right or if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into the fiery hell. Now look at verse 10. Here's the command. This is the imperative in the the emphatic position in the original language. See that you do not despise any of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven And that commandment comes in relationship to be alert, be on guard that you are not stumbling a stumbling block for others. Now, let me give you the Greek word for the one used here for stumbling blocks. Or you may have in your uh, scriptures, uh, you may have the word offenses, And I think you're going to recognize the Greek word when I say it. Scandalon. It's the, where we get the English word, what? Scandal. Now, scandals are far worse, right, than just common sin, saying something that hurts somebody's feelings. A scandal is something that's we would call notorious. It's, there's all kinds of, of, of evil that flows out of a scandal, right? Well, pastors fall into scandals and embezzlement or adultery, um, all types of kinds of abuses. Uh, in the corporate world, there are scandals, right? You can even have scandals in family depending on the, ner- the nature of the sin and how far out that sin extends to all the other family members. I mean, it, these are upheavals. These are, these are stumbling blocks. Now, I addressed that to a small degree last week just talking about these are not small sins that we should be willing to... Uh, not ignore, but th- these are things, look, brothers and sisters, that we might just pass through. These are stumbling blocks. These offenses that Jesus is speaking of here are those that would cause one to question whether or not Christianity is true, question whether or not the church is a place I need to be, question whether or not if any of this is valid and real and Jesus changes anyone. And that's why when you have pastors and elders or any church leadership fall into scandal, look at the effect it has on God's children, God's people. It's a, it's a terrible thing. And, and, and the, 
there are too many things that, or, or let me put it this way. There's way too many people with an oversensitive feeling sitting in church today that are offended at every kind of little thing whatsoever. And it keeps the church, it keeps the God's people in a constant unsettledness. That person that just can't seem to just get along with anyone. Over sensitive feelings, oversensitive consciences, all of these things that make for a place where we ought to be able to nurture and grow together, but too often it turns into drudgery. It's just almost too difficult to be close to that person because you're always called into an, a conference with them about something that was said or something that was not said. Case in point, I am sure that many pastors would have this same uh, experience that I'm about to share with you, but I have on more than one occasion have been pulled off to the side by someone saying, Pastor, uh, you, you know, you offended me. Um, well, I'm, what, did, what happened? What did I do? And it would be something, well, I walked past you in the hallway and you didn't look at me or you didn't speak to me. And this is, this is, this is not, and this is not makeup. This is, this is, happens. And I feel for that person that would be that sensitive. Um, you know, and of course, you, you do the brotherly thing. You give them the Christian assurance of love and, and, and respect, and, and you, you try to move on past that. But that's not, the, that, that's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to scandals, stumbling blocks, things that we would do that would cause others to seriously stumble in their faith. And it starts primarily with the leadership. Notice who comes to Jesus with the question. Peter. There's a lot at stake here because if the disciples are bickering among themselves, if, if they are to go out and preach the gospel, preach forgiveness, preach these Christian graces, and yet they're bickering and fighting and murmuring and, and, and backbiting one another, what kind of effect would that have on their ministry? So our Lord Jesus takes this and he begins to teach Peter these evangelical lessons that I'm sure were flowing over to the other disciples involved and is explaining to them that it's important that they have these traits and attributes, these graces evident in their lives for the sake of what Jesus said, these children, these little ones. So we must be alert, brothers and sisters. We must see to it that we look at ourselves daily we must, we must be willing, and, and this is part of humility, humble enough to say, Lord, I, I, I'm a sinner. And there are things in my life that, I've, that I'm working on and, and things in my life that have cropped back up for various reasons, things that I have been victorious over, but yet my life is a life of grace and it's a life that continues on this side of glory to battle sin in me and outside of me. We must be humble and we must be alert. Jesus emphasizes how alert we must be because what happens when we find sin in our lives? What does he tell us to do? Cut off the offending member. If it's your hand, cut off your hand. Now, this isn't literal, 
But the emphasis, the spiritual emphasis being made here is, is clear, isn't it? That we must be ready and willing to amputate a portion of our lives if it means that I am to be a stumbling block, if I'm going to be a stumbling block for these little ones. And again, even in this lesson, what does Jesus say? It's better that you perform this spiritual surgery here than be cast into hell. You think about, I, I, can, I could give you names of people that have testified, I don't go to church anymore because of pastor so-and-so because of deacon so-and-so, because of elder so-and-so, or because of Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. They weren't elders, they weren't, le- they weren't official leaderships, but they ran the church. And then they would go on to explain what happened. This is what Jesus is speaking about. You know, all the things that we go through, the things that we face, the, the, the family trials, the, the, the corporate trials that we may face as a church body, we must be alert, especially leaders, that we don't act in such a way, talk in such a way, treat each other in such a way that would throw stumbling blocks out to God's children. And cause them to stumble. It'd be best to suffer some loss than for that to happen. Be humble and be alert. The third one, be thankful. Look at verse 12. Jesus asks, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not lead the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it, so, so it is not, so is it not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish? Be thankful, beloved, that the Lord went after you and he went after me. Be thankful. You can see how he is leading Peter down this spiritual path to maturity, can't you? Me humble, be alert, but you got to be thankful. Thankful. Why? Because remember, beloved, we didn't seek him. He sought us. We didn't wake up one day and decide to be reformed Presbyterian Christians, superior among the Christian class. God came to us and he opened our eyes and the very first thing that we saw in ourselves was great sin. Great sin. Be thankful, beloved, that our Lord came and sought you out. You can see this groundwork of humility, can't you? We have nothing to boast or brag about. We have no trophies to pull out of our showcase, do we? And show the world that somehow we've played the game and we've earned the rewards. No, this is a work of God's grace. This is a work of God's sovereign grace. This is a work of God in our hearts. And yes, once he has put that grace and he's made us alive and he's caused us to be born again, of course we participate with that grace, but we stand on the ground of sovereign grace and we must daily be thankful that our Lord came after us. 
I mean, before we throw up unnecessary barriers to others about forgiveness and sins, we must practice thankfulness. And we were like that servant who had a debt he could not pay. He could not pay it. He was incapable of paying it. Even if he had the best job making the highest salary and lived to be a thousand years old, he could never pay back the debt he owed this king. Insurmountable, humanly speaking. And be thankful, brothers and sisters, that our Lord came after us. And in doing so, there was a great rejoicing over the one found, the, the reclaiming of the wayward is a reason to rejoice. Now, not only would we be humble, alert, and thankful, but on verse 15 through 20, where we see that our Lord then begins to apply this lesson, right? This evangelical lesson, this duty to us, he now applies the role, the responsibility we have to go to our brothers, our sisters, who would put stumbling blocks in our way and show them their fault. And so here I would say we are to be loving, we are to love one another. And loving one another is not easy. It's easy, as our Lord said, to love those who love you. It's easy to be kind to those who are kind to you. It's easy to want to be around those that want to be around you. But when, but, but that's, that's not all of it, is it? Love is often tested. Love is challenged. You might say love's put to the test. It's, it's, it's put under pressure. And that when we are put under pressure, what is in us will come out. If I squeeze an orange, grape juice isn't coming out. But if I squeeze an orange, orange juice is coming out. And when we're squeezed... What we want to happen by God's grace is spiritual grace is coming out. We want what God has put in us for his glory and our maturity. Our, that's, what it, that's what the word edification means, to, to build up. To build up in what way? To be spiritually mature. It's the Ephesians 4 concept of that we are growing in unity with one another in doctrines and faith so that we grow up in love and maturity so that we are more and more like Christ even as a body. So that when we are sinned against to a degree and in a way that it needs to happen. There needs to be a confrontation. Beloved, it must be in love. Notice what Jesus says in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That's loving. We don't want to make a big deal about this. We don't want to make a big show about this. I want my brother to come to me in private and tell me my sin, and I want to go to my brother in private to show him his sins. And this is the, notice the last two clauses there. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The purpose of this portion of Matthew 18 is not to give us a whip and a whipping post, justification to tie up our brothers and sisters and whip them spiritually. It's not for the 
the pound of flesh mentality. You know, you, you've barely, you, you, you've, you've committed these small sins against me, but I will extract a ton from you of forgiveness. That sinful vengeance couched in spiritual garb. We're to go privately. We're to go lovingly. We're to go for the purpose of winning our brother or our sister, not to create further distance or more um, sin. The Bible tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. That's a great lesson for husbands and wives. When we want to defend ourselves, when we want to, you know, launch into DEFCON 5 over a minor point. And, and, and when I've done that, when I've went to DEFCON 5, I can't tell you how I would come back to the passage of Scripture and be just humiliated and convicted of just how sinful I am. And how I have to ask for forgiveness. Now, the purpose, beloved, if we're going to love one another, then we're going to go in the most discreet, humble, the most loving, sincere way to express ourselves so that we can have a, a reclaiming of relationships and friendships. Now, Jesus addresses what happens if there's, if it's not remedied up front, that there's an escalating process. Um, that is, if it escalates, that there are steps to take. But all of these steps are loving. All of them are loving. And, and it's the purpose and idea that what? Love is going to win the day no matter what. Even if the individual were to double down and, and, and not uh, want to ask for forgiveness, not want to make an amendment for their sins, but continue to justify or to make excuses or to blame others for their own sin, considering that it's a valid situation, there is a process that you go through so that love can win the day. Because even if this person is cast out of the fellowship of the church as a credible, of having a credible profession of faith, love wins the day because it's a, it's a sad day, beloved, when we allow people to remain in church that can't be gracious to others because it is a display that they have not been, well, they have not received grace themselves. And that's the point Jesus is making in the whole chapter. What you have been graciously, sovereignly given, you be prepared to act upon others. And no excuse. No excuse. In fact, Jesus ends this portion of it by saying in verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. That if this issue were to escalate and become a church issue and church discipline was needed and necessary to, for the honor of God's name, for the peace and purity of the church, and what? The salvation of the person. Jesus says, I'm in your midst. I'm there. This is a righteous thing. I'm participating in it with you. I am in your midst that this is accomplished. Brothers and sisters, it's something that our world has yet to learn and maybe because the church hasn't learned it well enough and that is it's not loving to lie to people. It's not loving to deceive people. It's not loving to turn a blind eye to notorious sinning. And I'm afraid 
that there are hundreds if not thousands of churches doing that very thing today. Letting people live any way contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the holiness of God Almighty and acting as if he understands, don't worry about it, it'll be okay. Just the context itself, beloved. Woe to the world, verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. That's a warning. That's not Jesus winking at it. That's not Jesus saying, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. That's Jesus saying, woe. Woe. I believe that that Greek word is equivalent to the Old Testament word for cursed. Woe. Cursed is the man who is a stumbling block to others. We have to be careful. So we need to be loving. And then lastly, in verse 21 and following the text that I read when I stood up in the pulpit to begin with is, brothers and sisters, we must be forgiving. We must be a forgiving people. We must be willing to forgive those, uh, particularly those that we live with the most and see the most, right? The ones that we are most intimate with, we must be willing to forgive their offenses, to forgive their sins, to forgive when they uh, unknowingly, let's say, have put a stumbling block in our way. We must be forgiving. And what Jesus teaches us in the parable is that it's not just something that we're going to do once or twice or here and there, that the Christian experience, the Christian life in a marriage and others is that the Christian life is a life that is consumed with forgiving one another and asking for forgiveness. It's something that's, well, It's something that we should do. It's something, let me put it this way. It's something we should be professional at. We should be professionals at asking one another for forgiveness when we have sinned. Why should we hesitate? Why should we hesitate if we're practicing charity, if we're practicing that that, that that spiritual equity, right? If we're practicing righteousness, why, why should we be concerned what we look like if we have sinned against one another? Why is it so difficult to say, brother, sister, please, in God's name, forgive me. I would never want to be a stumbling block for you. And I am appalled at myself. I am ashamed of myself that I have caused you to stumble and I'm asking that you would grant me forgiveness. I hope we can see the context, the lessons, and now let's look at sort of that exclamation mark that Jesus puts on it when Peter asks him that second question Lord, how often shall my brother, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus is teaching us that our whole lives, we ought to stand ready and willing to grant forgiveness without limitation. There's no limit. 70 times 7. It's important to note that in the Jewish writings, they taught, these rabbis during Jesus' day taught that you could forgive a person three times for the same thing, but not four. That is, I guess maybe that's where we got it, three strikes and you're out. Oh, that was baseball, wasn't it? But that's close. Three strikes and you're done. When Jesus, and it may be that Peter was exceeding that because he knew that the 
virtues that Christ came and, and was teaching. G, uh, Peter had walked with Christ long enough to know that, that Christ would excel that. And so it might be that Peter put seven on there for the sake of going beyond the rabbis, but Jesus takes it further than that and tells Peter 70 times seven, which would have been, well, which would have astounded Peter. But Peter would have easily made the connection that I'm to live a life of being ready and willing to forgive my brothers and my sisters. And of course, Peter would immediately be thinking about the rift among the disciples. I need to be, I need to forgive these men who have sinned against me. This exclamation mark is important because in it, we learn that there is no other way. That is the, this path that Jesus has laid out in these lessons, right? It, these things that Jesus has imposed upon us as duties. These are duties, right? This exclamation mark points out in the parable itself that to whom much is given, much is what? Required. That's the point. The king had forgiven his servant an innumerable debt, I mean, an insurmountable debt that he would have never paid, been able to pay back. And what our Lord is doing is pointing to the fact that this is the relationship that we all stand in relation, related to our God and our Heavenly Father, that He has forgiven us more than we can imagine, more than we even know. How dare we be a people who claim to be the recipients of God's forgiving grace and many other saving graces and yet stand in the way of someone else being granted forgiveness. A terrible thing. Terrible thing. How ungodly, how contrary to <laughs> to the kingdom of heaven, how contrary to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at four dangers. I'm going to give you four dangers, four things to look for, or four pitfalls for those that are not forgiving, okay? Okay? Four pitfalls for those that are reluctant to forgive, are slow to forgive, are unwilling to forgive. So let's look at these four things and move to our third point. The first thing that I want to warn you about is bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness is a form of hatred. It's, it's a form of, of anger and it is easy, beloved, when someone has perceived an offense or been sinned against. It's easy. It's easy for them to rehearse it over and over in their heads to continue to put the most evil interpretation upon all of these actions and become a very vengeful, bitter, hateful person. You can open your Bibles or turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, the command that the writer of Hebrews gives us is to pursue peace. Pursue peace. Well, that's the opposite of vengeance. That's the opposite of bitterness. It's the opposite of anger. So pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one 
will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. The command there in verse 14, pursue peace in the original language uses a word that describes the pursuit of a hunter and its prey. The hunter pursuing its prey. It's hard. It's ongoing. He's relentless. He's tracking. The hunter is moving ever closer, trying to outsmart, trying to outwit and overcome the prey. That's the picture given to us as God's children that we are to pursue peace. We are to be peacekeepers. We are to pursue peace. We are to seek peace not only collectively, but also among ourselves as individuals, like a hunter pursuing his prey. Now, in notice, the, the warning on the end of verse 14, and the sanctification, that is, this, this sanctification, this, this um, progressive growing in grace that the writer tells us that without this sanctification, without being sanctified, no one will see the Lord. Without this holiness, without this progression of growing in this maturity and in the stature and, and, and of the Lord, he says, no one's going to see the Lord. That is, there is a, a paradigm and an environment that all of God's children live in, and that's that of growth and sanctification. If you're not in that paradigm, if you're not in that, that system of growth, if you're not a part of that, you're not going to see the Lord, not in a favorable way. And then he goes on to, tell, to warn us again in verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Now this is why this is a scandal. This is how bitterness turns into a scandal. That there is a person that is angry, bitter, and wants revenge. And they're willing, they're willing to sin to get it. And they defile many. They, they, they spring up in families. They spring up in churches. And when they're done, there's many people that have been touched by that anger and that bitterness and that defilement. And they're defiled. And many people will go. They'll leave the church. I can remember um, church situations that people would leave and say, listen, I, I, you know, I, I'm leaving the church not because, pastor, I think you've done anything wrong or I, you don't, it, 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 the, the facts seem to be the facts, but I, I just, you know what, I just don't want to be here now. And they leave. Many are defiled because of that person that did not amputate the hand. They didn't pluck out the eye. They didn't take a radical, aggressive position to address their own hearts. They didn't humble themselves. They didn't love their neighbor more than themselves. And, and they allowed bitterness to come into their life and to spring up and actually defile many others. Deuteronomy 13 speaks of this. Early in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of this. It's something that we must be careful of, beloved. We must be watchful for the sin of bitterness, anger, and resentment. The second one is we, we must be careful that we do not give Satan a foothold in our lives. That is, it, it, to be an unforgiving person is to give Satan a foothold. 
It could be in, in your life. It could be in your family. It could be in, in a church. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians. The text I want to use here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. Let me give you the, the, the context. Paul is writing to the church about, and he's having to address the church now. The excommunicant in 1 Corinthians 1, who was guilty of immorality and one that Paul excommunicated, has repented of his sins he has asked for forgiveness and now he wants to come back to the church. But guess what? The church doesn't want him back. There seems to be some arrogance and some pride, some hypocrisy involved. And notice what Paul says here. He goes, let's back up to verse 5. He says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. What Paul says is he's already been punished. Why are you continuing to punish him? So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to, to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgave, forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Paul says, I have forgiven him. Why don't you forgive him instead of, uh, uh, of putting upon him an undue burden of excessive sorrow? He's already demonstrated sorrow for his sin. He's already demonstrated a heart of repentance. He wants to come back into the fellowship of, of God's people. Why are you hindering this? Be careful, beloved. How many of these people thought they were still doing God's work. We don't want that kind of person in here. Mm -mm. I mean, the church is for sinners, right? But not that kind of sinner. Not those bad sinners. We want good sinners. You know, we want sinners that look like us. Paul rebukes them and challenges them. He says, is not God putting you to the test? God is putting you to the test. Why don't you receive this brother who's demonstrated sorrow over his sin and has asked for forgiveness? Why don't you forgive him? I've forgiven him, Paul says. I don't want to go into, uh, you know, great detail, but think about when Satan gets a foothold into a congregation or into a family. We're not careful. We will be the Pharisee standing by the sinner who won't even look up to heaven, beating their chest in worship, saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We will look down on that person and say, God, thank you, I'm not like them. Satan is in your midst when a church forgets how much they've been forgiven. Thirdly, be careful, beloved, of unanswered prayers. Matthew chapter 6. We prayed it this morning, didn't we? Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have basically sinned against us. Mark 
Mark chapter 11 speaks of even worship. If you're worshiping God and you know that your brother has something against you that they have told, that they've said to you, look, brother, you've sinned against me. I, I want to I work this out with you. I want to I talk to you. And, and we want to worship and we want to act like that. Mark records what Jesus said, leave your gifts at the altar and go. Take care of this business. Because having an unforgiving heart or a heart that is unreconcilable will hinder your prayers and it will hinder your worship. And then the last one. The last one comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And that is, beloved, that we will reap what we sow. If we judge others harshly and by our own subjective standard, then we too will be judged by our own standard. That the Lord will even use our own standard against us. So we must be very careful when we look at others and we talk about how sinful, how notorious someone else may be without first looking to oneself is a, that's a great danger. That's a big mistake. And we must be alert and be watchful against that. So those are four dangers we should not be, beloved, critical in our assessments. We should be biblical. We should be just. We don't, we don't need to be flatterers. But we don't want to be overly harsh and critical. Because that's not how our Lord has treated us. What happened when the king, what happened when the servant in Matthew 18 said, forgive me, I will pay you back all that I owe. Now, he couldn't pay it back. He owed too much. But what did the king do? He forgave him. He forgave him. Let's talk, let's, let's, let's talk, beloved, about the gospel And here's what I want to say about the gospel. God is not obligated to forgive any person. Not obligated. Any further than he obligates himself. Meaning, God did not choose to forgive every man of their sins. He chose to forgive the elect. Nor did God choose to forgive any of the fallen angels. But it pleased God to hold them accountable for their transgressions. And in any of those situations, God is still holy, good, merciful, and most just most loving, most kind, most gracious. Because, beloved, here's the fact of the matter. God was not obligated. He chose to forgive sin. He chose to listen and to hear those who would cry out to him in forgiveness. And he chose not to hold their sins against them, but to place them on his son who would pay for those sins. Every jot and every tittle. There's not one sin that you have committed, beloved. If you are in Christ Jesus, there's not a past sin and there's not a future sin that you have not been forgiven in Christ. And you, you and I owe God an insurmountable debt that only, only Christ could pay a debt that only he could pay. 
And that when we sit back, before we puff ourselves up with arrogance and pride and whatnot, that we must remember God was not obligated to forgive us, but he chose to. He chose to exercise who he is, love. He'd have been completely still loving if he'd have said, no, this is just, I will hold you accountable for your actions in Adam and you will all be judged accordingly. He could have said that. Just as he turned to the fallen angels and held them in their sin. Beloved, this is the picture of God's amazing grace. Amazing grace. This is the picture of the depth, the breadth, and the immensity of God's willingness to put that debt on his son. Isaiah said that it pleased the Lord to bruise and afflict him for our sakes. Every time, beloved, we sin, Christ paid it. He paid it. He continues to pay our sins. In this, in that, as Beloved, even the repentance we offer to the Lord. And as, as the Bible teaches us, repentance doesn't save us, but you can't be saved without it. That we are a people that are sensitive to offending God. If we focused on God way more than we focused on our own feelings, we'd be a lot better off. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what I don't have, what I don't get, how much respect I'm owed, all this banner, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when are we going to start talking about what's offensive to God and walking in it? This is the gospel. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that because you and I have been forgiven so much, we ought to be ready and willing to grant forgiveness to those who have done so little. And I hope this morning we can renew our minds in the truth of the gospel, and we can recognize how much we've been given in Christ. We can't even count that high. We can't even imagine how our offenses stack up to God. We're just ignorant, we're blind, we're just, we're just, like, we're just like dumb sheep. And yet, that's the fact of the matter. That's the illustration in the parable, so much. So much, so much that these sins that we deal with with, it, with one another, I'm not saying they're not important and are hurtful. Or, or, I'm not saying they're not hurtful. I'm saying in comparison to, that's what I'm saying. People do hurt one another. People do hurt one another. And it's tragic that we have to live in sorrow sometimes because of how we've been hurt by others. But beloved, compared to what we have been forgiven in Christ, when that time comes for that person to, to want to reconcile, you and I should always be standing ready and willing to what? To forgive. And it's not easy. Remember the points I made last week? It's costly. It's not easy. Look what it costs Christ to forgive us. May the Lord refresh these gospel truths in our minds and our hearts and may we leave here ready to be humble, alert, loving, and forgiving. Let's pray. Father, do bless the teaching this morning. Help us to grasp it. It's very practical. It's not hard at all, but yet it is so convicting. Lord, take away from us a spirit of punishment 
For you tell us that vengeance is yours and not ours. Take away from us, O Lord, a critical spirit, a a spirit that that will seek to extract more than necessary. Lord, like these saints in Corinth who just wanted to punish this person, Lord, who who was coming back and, Lord, demonstrating that grace had worked in his heart and he wanted to be forgiven and he wanted to grow in grace. Lord, keep us from that here. Lord, give us the spirit of Joseph who was sinned greatly against by his brothers and yet he not only forgave his brothers but he took care of them in the end. He watched over them and their children. Oh, Father, give us the spirit of Christ. Give us the spirit, O oh Lord, of, of the Christian faith, Lord, that is vibrant, that is vivid of the gospel and help us to walk in it all of our days. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.